This is a Sunday Talk by Joel, titled, Here to Learn, Here to Love, Here to Serve. Recorded September 14, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. Ultimately, the secret to knowing God or the ultimate reality or the Tao or Brahman or Buddha nature or uh, whatever it's called in whatever tradition is to know oneself, to know one's true self. Uh, Muhammad said, Whoso knoweth himself knoweth his Lord. And this is a famous uh, slogan in Sufism. You want to know God, Allah? Know yourself. The, uh, the Hindus say, that thou art, that is the ultimate Brahman, the ground of all being. That is what you truly are. So if you want to know that, find out who you are, and that's how you'll know Brahman. Uh, Wayneng, great Buddhist master, said, uh, your very nature is the Buddha nature, and apart from that, there is no other Buddha. So if you want to know the Buddha nature, the nature of all things, that all the nature of all things in Buddhism is Buddha nature, then find out your own true nature. And Jesus said, I and the Father am one. You want to know the Father, find out about yourself. The kingdom of God is within. So this is testified to throughout all the great traditions. But the trouble is, we don't know our true self just automatically because we suffer from this delusion or misidentification or misperception that we are a false self, a limited, finite ego self. This false self, this ego self, is not a thing. This is very important. It's not something that actually exists. It's a pattern of thoughts, emotions, actions, and so forth that swirls around and creates this impression there's something there. I was watching the news the other night. There's this big hurricane in the Pacific, unusual in the Pacific. And they were showing satellite shots of it. And you see all this cloud pattern swirling around the center, the eye of the hurricane. And that's kind of a good analogy for actually this false self. There's nothing in the center. We call it the eye of the hurricane, but there's nothing actually there. It's not like if the whole hurricane dissipates, if this pattern breaks up, you can't go pluck out the eye and say, oh, well, here I found the eye. It's imaginary. And our sense of a false self is established the same way. It's a pattern of swirling thoughts, emotions, actions, activity, and so forth that revolves around this seeming uh, center, which we call I, but it's truly imaginary. It's not actually there. When we identify with this pattern, however, this limited pattern, this sets up a duality in our experience. We identify with this pattern, and this pattern seems to be separate from the rest of the world. So we have this dualistic experience of I and other, self and world, subject and object. And then as long as we believe we are this false self and we continue to have this dualistic experience, we relate to the world 
in this dualistic way. And that relation reinforces this sense of being a false self. Because then things in the world appear to us as other, as objects out there. And from the point of view of this limited self, they appear as pleasant or unpleasant or threatening or enhancing. And based on that, we start uh, grasping at the things that are pleasant, we think will enhance us, and trying to avoid and push away the things that are unpleasant and that we feel are threatened, uh, that threaten us. And so this determines our whole motivation for living and all our activities in life. So it becomes a self-perpetuating pattern based on this initial misperception about who we are, and then this experience of duality, and then our relation to the world, uh, and this constantly trying to grasp things and uh, push things away. And so it, it's a pattern that constantly perpetuates itself. And we can uh, identify this quite clearly, especially if you've done a little meditation and, and are able to listen to your own mind, as what we might call the voice of the ego. You can hear it in your head. It's that voice that goes along all day uh, with I at the center of it, uh, saying things like, you know, oh, I, I like this, it's sunny out here, I think I'll take the uh, day off and go bike riding, or I don't like that, it looks like it's going to rain, oh, it's fall, I'm getting so depressed, I think I'll have to go to Hawaii, oh, I, 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 I at the center of all this. So, one of the first major steps, if you're going to take a spiritual path, is to seek solitude, to withdraw from this whole pattern of interaction with the world for a while, and to cut off the triggers in the environment, the pleasant and unpleasant things that are rising, that keep activating this voice. And when you do that, the voice weakens a little bit. So you may draw into uh, a daily practice of meditation for half an hour a day or an hour a day. That's, that's withdrawal. You don't answer your phones, shut your phones off, you know, don't answer the door. You sit quietly, you focus on your breath or your mantra, whatever you go inward. You ignore your surroundings. You might go on a retreat for a weekend, a week, three weeks, three months, three years. The whole purpose of this is to withdraw from these catalysts that are in our environment to keep triggering this voice of the ego. And the voice gets quieter and quieter. It's still there, but it it's weakens. And then as it weakens, you don't have to do anything else. As it weakens, you start to get little glimpses, little flashes of this true self that all the mystics talk about, of this absolute reality, of this divine reality. It's underneath there all the time. It's not something that you construct or create. It's just there. It's just hidden by this noise that's constantly chattering, chattering, chattering. So this is very, very important on a spiritual path. But the trouble is, we do that for a while, and we get little glimpses, but then we come back to our worldly life and re-engage in worldly affairs, and all those catalysts are still out there, and they activate the voice of the ego again, right? 
And then it all starts up chattering away and you forget. Those little glimpses you got in the beginning, maybe they were quite spectacular or on retreat, but they get swamped when you come back from retreat. They get uh, overridden by all this noise, this chatter, this pattern, this uh, what the Buddhists call this habit energy. Their habits of mind, way, the ways we think about things. Their habits of the heart, the way we feel about things, particularly this dualistic uh, way we divide up our, our emotions, our feelings, uh, good and bad. And our habits of action, how we relate to things. So if we want to have a permanent, full, complete gnosis of this ultimate reality. We have to spend some time purifying our hearts, minds, and actions of these egoic habits. And really, the best place to conduct this purification is in the midst of worldly affairs. Because you can't purify what isn't arising. When you're off in retreat, when you're up there in the caves in the Himalayas, and there aren't people around to insult you or to praise you, the voice of the ego doesn't arise. It just lays dormant. So there's no chance to purify that. So it's in the moment when these things arise that you can see them and purify them. And the purification is quite simple. It's simply not reacting. Breaking the habit. And the only way we can really do it is when it's happening, and the only uh, and the most powerful way we can experience it happening is in the midst of worldly affairs. So the second major step, if you like, on a spiritual path here, is to return to the world, withdraw from the world to get some taste, some experience of this divine reality, and then return to the world. And instead of thinking of the world as an evil, rotten place and whatnot convert worldly life into your spiritual path. Make your worldly affairs part of your spiritual practice. Now, the principle is clear about this, but this is easier said than done. And the biggest obstacle to this for most people is they forget. They forget. You might be off in retreat for 10 days, and at the end of 10-day retreats, I usually give every day a little pep talk about try to carry this into your worldly affairs, and you make a great resolve, yes, you're going to, and a week later, you've forgotten. And it's not a question of remembering in general, you have to remember in the moment. When you're uh, on your job and uh, things are going badly, when you're having a fight with your spouse or your partner or your family members or whatever, it's right then that this is arising. And so that's the time to remember. We have a precept here at the center, part of which says that to treat every moment as a precious opportunity for spiritual practice. Every moment has the potential to be a precious opportunity for spiritual practice, if we would but remember this. So this morning I want to talk about a three-part motto that might help you remember in the moment. Here to learn. Here to love. And here to serve. 
whatever situation you find yourself in, if you remember that little motto and apply any one of those, you will convert it into a precious opportunity for spiritual practice. You will make it part of your spiritual path. What we're learning here is not so much intellectual knowledge or practical knowledge, but insight. What sort of insight can this uh, situation give me? Insight purifies our minds, it purifies our thoughts. When we actually see how things work, oh, aha! Then we no longer necessarily want to uh, continue in the old habitual way. Love purifies our hearts. Love overrides this uh, duality of uh, what's best for me and what's bad for me. When we love uh, anything, human beings, plants, animals, gardens or whatever, we're willing to extend ourselves. We start to <laughs> drop this me, me, meism, I, me, myism. That's what purifying the heart's about. And service purifies our activities for the same reason. When we are engaged in service, when our intention is to serve others, then it breaks this ego habit of only serving ourselves. The order of this is not necessarily important, or generally I think that people uh, begin with learning in life in general, but the more you learn, the more you love. And the more you love, the more you want to serve. And the more you serve, the more you learn from that service. So it's a, a circle that goes round and round, uh, a triangle in a circle. In fact, I'm a, I love vis visual aids, so I made a little diagram here. You could, if you're visual, you could, this might help <coughs> plant it in your memory, be useful. Here's a little mandala. Here to learn, here to love, here to serve. And you can, you know, flip these around anyway. It doesn't make any difference. So let's look at some examples of how this might work. What kinds of spiritual lessons can we learn from worldly situations? Well, the one thing we can do immediately is test out teachings. You know, we read these great books, the Bhagavad Gita or the Gospels or whatever. Oh, they, they sound great. We never bother to test them out to see if they're, what they teach is actually true. In a lot of uh, exoteric uh, religions or exoteric approaches, they just ask you to believe it just because it's written there. Well, see, it's written as the Word of God, so just believe it. That's a great disservice because what difference does it make if you believe it or not if it doesn't affect your life? You need a certain amount of faith on a spiritual path. You need exactly the kind of faith that you need when you go down to the U of O and you don't know anything about chemistry and you want to learn chemistry. You have to have faith that the professor there knows something about chemistry. And the first day you walk in, you're going to see all sorts of atomic tables written up on the, on the blackboard or hang charts hang on the wall. You don't know what they are. So you have, have some sort of faith that you can learn and that this knowledge will be ultimately transmitted to you and that eventually this knowledge will be your knowledge. What good does it do to walk into a chemistry class and have the teacher say, well, just believe it because I'm the teacher? It's nothing. You don't, you're not learning anything. So you walk out and maybe you've memorized the formula and say, this is true. I believe it. The same thing is uh, true of mysticism. 
that's why we call the center here the center for sacred sciences this uh, taking this experimental approach testing everything so you can test out teachings here's a, a typical teaching about impermanence you'll find teachings about impermanence in every single mystical tradition uh, and here's Ananda Moyamaya's teaching. Ananda Moyamaya was a contemporary Hindu mystic. She says, everything in this world is transitory. So also worldly happiness. It comes and the next moment it is gone. If permanent abiding happiness is to be found, that which is eternal will have to be realized. Well, that sounds good. You know, Jesus said the same thing. He said, don't uh, put your trust in the things of this world that rust corrupts and moths eat up, you know. Put your trust in the things of heaven. They don't get corrupted. This is the same teaching here. You'll find it one way or another in every single tradition. Now, a lot of spiritual seekers, they read that, all right, so they believe it. And she seems to be saying worldly happiness is no good. And then a funny thing happens. See, they... Uh, they experience a little worldly happiness. Uh, they go have a hot fudge Sunday or something, and ooh, they experience a little delight. And suddenly they feel guilty. They say, oh, this is worldly happiness. I shouldn't be feeling this. That's a completely wrong approach. Don't feel guilty. That's not going to teach you anything. If you remember here to learn, here to learn, that's how you convert this into a precious opportunity for spiritual practice. In fact, quite the opposite of feeling guilty about experiencing a little worldly happiness with a hot fudge Sunday. Let's take something bigger. Let's take a, a big feast. You go out to uh, dinner here, an expensive restaurant, and sumptuous foods and uh, wines, if you like wines, and, and really great desserts, and maybe some wonderful espresso coffee afterwards. The, the really way to learn from this is to enjoy it to the fullest, completely. Savor everything. Drink it to the last drop. Experience worldly happiness as much as you possibly can in that moment. And then see if what Ananda Moyamai says is true. Does it last? How long does it last? Is it permanent? You watch. You watch in detail. And that last sip of that wonderful espresso, you're, I don't know if you like espresso, I'm quite fond of it, you know, with a little, little twist. Ah, it's on the tongue and it's gone. Maybe the last drink of cognac. I, am, I love cognac. I can't drink it very much. It, it uh, gives me a terrible headache the next day and it's very expensive. So I have it maybe twice a year, you know, Christmas time or something. Watch carefully. Especially if you have a reaction like that. Next morning, oh, I shouldn't have had that cognac. Ugh. Not only did the happiness not last, <laughs> it's converted into its opposite in this case. Watch carefully. It's not a question about avoiding the world. It's a question about getting insight into the world. And if you start to watch worldly happiness in detail, fully experiencing it, you will start to get insight into what Ananda Moyamaya is saying, not as just some teaching on a pedestal, but the truth of it. The actual nitty-gritty, day-to-day, moment-to-moment truth of it. And that insight is what begins to interrupt this habit, what begins to free you. You won't start 
putting all your eggs into that basket of worldly happiness. Doesn't mean you won't enjoy a good meal, but you won't be looking to worldly things, worldly situations to give you this permanent, deep, full happiness that, by the way, we all intuit is, is possible. We, all of us are looking for it. I don't care how worldly you are. We're all looking for it, constantly looking for it. We know it's there. We just, from a mystic's point of view, most people are looking in the wrong place, that's all. I give you an example from my own life that I wrote about in my book, Make It Through the Gate. Uh, and this was just as I was starting on a spiritual path and wasn't even really aware of the teachings about this, but I was beginning to examine my life because here I had been, become quite successful in Hollywood in a worldly way, and it's supposed to make you happy. And it did for the first few years. It was really exciting. And, you know, I just kept making more money and going to better restaurants and all that. And after a while, it just wasn't doing it anymore. And I remember particularly, I had gotten this uh, brand new Audi. And they just come out. I'd never owned a new car in my life. I had owned secondhand cars and so forth. So not only was it a new car, but it was a quite expensive new car. And I loved that car. It had front-wheel drive, which I'd never driven before. It's great. You know, it pulls you around corners. It was uh, more comfortable than, than my living room in, in the interior, you know. It, was all, it wasn't leather, but it was some really nice fabric. You really sank down to the seat. It had push buttons for everything, you know, uh, sunroof and things. You know, you just play with it. I mean, just for the first month, I just did nothing but play with all these buttons and stuff. I loved it. And then it was very interesting. This went on for a month or so, and then I still enjoyed driving it and, and this and that. And then I remember quite distinctly going to work, and I was a little bit late for a meeting, and I'm and I, going over the strategy for the meeting in my mind. And in the middle of this, I realized I had lost all consciousness that I'm driving this Audi. I could have been driving a truck. It didn't matter, anything, you know. That thrill was no longer there. And... It just, uh, it just flashed in my mind. I realized, oh, well, if you want that back, you're going to have to now go get a Mercedes or a Porsche or something, you know, better. And, of course, the people I was working with in Hollywood is exactly what they do. You know, every year they get new toys, they get new cars and uh, new, you know, something. It always has to be new, novel, because the only way you can sort of keep the illusion of this going is to always have novelty. So here is just an example of this kind of learning, this kind of insight, this kind of really clicking home, uh, a teaching in relating it to my own experience. And that made an effect. That didn't, I didn't change my whole life just because of that one thing, but the series of these accumulating insights was what a major part of my spiritual path was about. And ultimately, look at where I'm at. I'm here instead of down there. And I am uh, completely happy, and I would have been miserable down there, and I had been a hundred times richer, uh, driving Mercedes and Rolls Royces and all that, doing all that, and miserable. Now, this wasn't uh, some uh, resolve I made, a strength of my will or my moral character or my great virtue. This came from insight into saying, hey, wait a minute, this isn't working. The importance of this here to learn, every moment here to learn. Adversity is, uh, again, opportunity for spiritual practice.
Most people find themselves in some situation adversity and they moan and groan and want to get away from it. But if you remember, here to learn. So something bad is happening, something's going on, here to learn. An example from my life is, and this was way before I was on a spiritual path, I was in the army and I was in a holding company and that they're just you're just waiting to ship out someplace and you don't really have anything to do and the sergeant's job is to keep you busy and then it becomes a game because we're always trying to get out of doing these details and they're always trying to catch us and put us on these details anyway this was in the in the fall and this was in virginia and the deep fall and the leaves were just pouring off the trees and it was a very windy day and the swirling around and there's this big parade ground and the sergeant takes me out there with a rake. He says, here, rake up the leaves. So I get the rake and the leaves, and I start raking up the piles. And the wind is just swirling it around, you know. And I rake up a pile, and I go on. And by the time I start raking up here, the pile's completely gone, you know. And I'm getting more and more furious. You know, this is just absolutely futile, stupid work. I'm angry at the sergeant. I'm angry at the army. I'm angry at the situation. I'm raking these leaves and the wind's blowing them away. And I said, this is absolutely nonsense. This is just, you know, I really working myself into a rage, tremendous suffering. And then I realized, wait a minute. Who said they're supposed to be piles? You're have this expectation that's supposed to work out this way. There aren't going to be any piles. You can rake all day. So well, drop that. All you're supposed to do is sit here and rake. So I just started raking. And I started dancing, you know, with the rake. And I'm raking this way and this way. And I literally started dancing. And it was a gorgeous day. The, I'm, I'm surrounded by the swirling color, you know, and this uh, breeze blowing. I had the, one of the greatest two hours of my life dancing around this parade ground. Now, again, here was a situation in adversity, and I couldn't have put it in these words at that time. I didn't have the technical language. I wasn't on a spiritual path. But I was attached to the fruit of my action, as the Bhagavad Gita describes it. You, you start out to do something, and you have a certain expectation of the result, and you latch on to that result. And there was, this is imaginary. The expect literally is imaginary. It's a mental picture you cooked up about what things, how things are supposed to be. And because your attention is uh, glued to that image of how things are supposed to be, and reality is departing from it, you know, and uh, in this case, at every step of the way, greater and greater, because you're clinging to that imaginary world that's never going to be, you're suffering. But if you just drop it, if you can see that, learn, have that insight, see this is what I'm doing, this is what's going on here, drop it. It's through the insight that it drops away. Do you see? Because you see, this is stupid, this is silly. I'm, I'm, I am my own worst enemy. I'm the one who's causing the suffering. In this particular case, uh, the whole situation changed around became a delight. That's, that's a good, vivid example. It doesn't always turn around and become a delight. But it's that recognizing that the suffering is something comes from something we do, something inside. It's not about changing the outer environment. It's about learning about how our own processes work, seeing clearly, here to learn, and then through that insight, something is released, something drops. <coughs> In general... If you start taking this attitude, approaching every situation here to learn, it'll start to transform your whole life. 
in the sense of giving it a new kind of purpose. So in my case, when I was uh, in Hollywood and I was starting to learn, and the more I learned, the more curious I got, I started to look at my whole day differently. I'd get up in the morning and I'd go to work not just to make money, not just to get this project done, not just for that, but in general I think, what am I going to learn today? What am I going to see today? This is like a whole other dimension to life opened up. So it didn't matter, even if I knew it was going to be a terrible day because I had to have a meeting with somebody I didn't like or whatever. So the particulars of the day, uh, it's not that they, some of them weren't pleasant, some of them weren't unpleasant, but they were all sort of uh, put in perspective by this larger attitude here to learn, whether it's good or bad, whether it's going to be worldly happiness or whether it's going to be adversity, whether you're going, you got an appointment with the dentist or you got an appointment with your girlfriend or boyfriend, you know, doesn't matter, here to learn. Here to learn cuts right through that duality. And so your whole life starts to transform in that way. Learning leads to love. Here's how Catherine of Siena, she was a great uh, Christian mystic of the Middle Ages, here's how she puts it. Love follows upon understanding. The more they know, the more they love. And the more they love, the more they know. Thus each nourishes the other. So if you take the attitude here to learn and you're in a situation and nothing's happening in terms of learning, try here to love. Here to love. I'm here to love. Love is, uh, at least seems paradoxical, especially spiritual love, especially when it's taught from a spiritual point of view, because on the one hand, the value of spiritual love is that it is selfless. It does override this voice of the ego. Jamgang Kongchol great Tibetan master, put it this way. He said, the whole basis of mind training is the two principles of throwing out concern for your own welfare and taking a complete hold of the welfare of others. Again, you read through the Gospels, you find the exact same teaching. Jesus talks about it in detail, you know. Uh, if somebody uh, asks you to go a mile, go two miles with them. If they ask you for your shirt, give them your coat also. Stop looking at your own welfare and start paying attention to the welfare of others. This is an expression of total selflessness. On the other hand, love is completely selfish because from a mystic's point of view, it is the way for your own happiness. So Ramana Maharshi, for instance, says, all that one gives to others, one gives to oneself. If this truth is understood, who will not give to others? If this dichotomy between I and other is false, if it's imaginary, if it's based on some delusion, if there is no real difference, then giving to others is giving to yourself. There's no real fundamental difference. Oh, the more you're giving away, the more you're getting. I mean, you're just, you know, it's going round and round. And, from a mystic's point of view, to start to act out of love instead of act out of selfishness is how you discover this fundamental happiness, this permanent happiness that Ananda Moyamai talks about. So, so what is love? Is it selfish or is it selfless? Well, truly speaking, that's the whole point about love, isn't it? It transcends this duality. 
I mean, ultimately, when you're acting out of love, this whole duality evaporates. So the question, is it selfish or is it selfless? Itself evaporates. But in the meantime, I think it's better to start with the motivation of selfishness. I think it's better to approach a situation, if you say here to love, just be honest about it, because after all, when we're starting on a spiritual path, we're all selfish about it. That's why we're on a spiritual path. We want to find the ultimate truth. We want to be happy. So think of it that way. Stop pretending to be a saint or something. Here to love because I want to be happy. And instead of saying, here to love, I'm here to love because I want to make others happy, just uh, admit it. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to love here because I want to be happy. I want to see what all these mystics are talking about. So how can you uh, put love into practice? Well, the first thing is to start looking for the obstacles to love. From a mystic's point of view, love, compassion, bliss are all in the nature of reality. Again, they don't have to be created. It's just a question of uh, removing the the um, grime and the dirt that covers it up. God is love in both the Jewish and Christian traditions. God is love. That is what God is. In the, in the uh, Islamic tradition, the whole world comes from the breath of the merciful. The Allah's breath, the image is Allah's breath. See this breath of mercy, of love, and what it, when the world comes into being. So it's not a question of, uh, again, of really uh, cultivating love as much as pinpointing the obstacles and just removing them. Now, let's say you're in a situation where someone's behaving badly towards you. Maybe they're insulting you or putting you down or giving you a hard time at work or something like that. So start by looking at your own mind. Here's what the Buddha says about this. He says, He abused me, mistreated me, defeated me, robbed me. Harboring such thoughts keeps hatred alive. He abused me, mistreated me, defeated me, robbed me. Releasing such thoughts banishes hatred for all time. He abused me is the voice of the ego. And releasing those thoughts is letting go of the ego. It's breaking that identification with the ego, right? Now, this is such a wonderful practical teaching. First of all, isn't this universal? Haven't we all had thoughts like that? That terrible person, he's abusing me, he's mistreated me, he's cheating me. Has anybody, anybody not experienced this? This is the voice of the ego, churning away there. Now, notice what the Buddha says. The wording is very careful here. Harboring such thoughts keeps hatred alive. Owning such thoughts. I have a right to be angry with this. I have a right to feel this way. All right, you have a right to feel this way. It's in the Constitution. This isn't a question about being right or having a right or not. It's a question about do you want to be happy? Releasing such thoughts. The Buddha knows darn well that these, you can't make these thoughts not arise. They arise. That's part of the conditioning. But instead of harboring them, release them. Let them go. They arise, just let them go. That banishes hatred. Now, you have to experiment with this 
because you have to see in your own experience <laughs> when are you happier so the next time you get thoughts like this again it's a little bit like worldly happiness first indulge them really work yourself up I have a right to hate this person and then and check out how you your your degree of happiness here right check it out and then let go here to love I can't love this person but at least I can let go of all this in the beginning here to love at least I'm not gonna hate them you let all that go check it out see how you feel from your own experience this is nothing to do with uh, your rights. Uh, everybody has a right to suffer. Right, let's grant that in, in front. Everybody, you have an absolute perfect right to suffer. If that's what you want to do. Where is real, true, permanent happiness abide? What direction does it lie in? Does it lie in the direction of being right and self-righteous and, and this and that? Or is it, does it lie in the direction of love, of letting all that go? The second thing you can do is practice restraint from acting on these kinds of thoughts, this animosity that arises or fear that arises. That's the voice of the ego now determining your actions. Our tendency is if someone insulted us to insult them back. Now you think I'm stupid. Where'd you get your degree at Sears and Roebuck? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's different from a little friendly bantering, although sometimes that can turn into something more. Or resist the urge to get even. You know, we all experience this, don't we? And, and sometimes this is more subconscious. There are very subtle ways of getting even. You, you do something for a colleague at work and uh, they don't respond with the uh, appropriate... Uh, level of gratitude that you expect. Oh, let me see if I ever do that many favors again. So, uh, just drop this. Don't act on the voice. Even though the voice of the ego is turning away there, there's another place you can cut this habit energy. Just stop acting on it. And again, this is not to become a saint and make yourself into a virtuous person. It's for your own benefit. Here's what Ananda Moyamaya says. To criticize people or to feel hostile towards anyone harms oneself and puts obstacles into one's path to the Supreme. The reason you're here to love is because it's through love that you are led to this supreme happiness, this ultimate happiness, this divine happiness. Be, in the beginning, be just totally selfish about it. If you are and you follow love, love itself will undo the selfishness. You don't have to worry about fighting your own selfishness. It'll just dissolve it away. When love truly arises, it just dissolves selfishness. Third, you can cultivate compassion in this sense. You can get into the habit of taking the attention off your own problems and at least at least give equal time to other people's problems and suffering. We think that suffering is intensely personal. But if you spend a little time learning about suffering, you will come to see that suffering is universal. This is the first great truth of Buddhism. Life is suffering. 
this isn't a, a, some sort of nihilistic negative statement about gloomy look at life. He's just stating a fact that everybody who lives suffers. There's no one who's uh, gone through life without any suffering. And because it's universal, it is impersonal. Suffering is suffering. When you can begin to get a little insight into that, and you see that suffering is suffering, it's not my suffering, it's not your suffering, that automatically activates a compassionate response. You don't have to work up a lot of emotion. Just the way you respond to your own suffering with compassion, when you see suffering, you just respond compassionately. You do have to make a little effort to take the attention just off me, me, me. So in your situation with other people, even though you're suffering, you have to make a little effort to look around the room and say, oh yes, I see they're suffering too. And, uh, and very often that suffering is being expressed as hostility. And you can, uh, if you start with here to learn about your own hostility, you will see your hostility is coming from suffering. And then you can read that. So now you, you understand where your hostility is coming from. And then someone's being hostile. Instead of reacting, pushing them away, you hear that hostility in their voice. and their, You see it in their body movements or something. You look right at it because you say, oh, I'm hearing suffering. I'm hearing a cry of a suffering being. And so you go and look. And sure enough, you'll see they're suffering. There's a big difference between true compassion and pity. Compassion is not pity. Compassion is not having pity for the poor people who are homeless or who are in the gutters who are suffering disease. Or if you go to the hospital and some friend of yours you know, has some disease and you think, oh, that poor person, so forth. That is pity. That is not compassion. Compassion is seeing there's no difference. Again, it's this somewhere it transcends selfishness and selflessness. Compassion is when you go into the hospital and you look at your friend there dying of cancer and you don't say there but for the grace of God go I. You say, yes, well, I'm going to be there one way or another someday too. Or I've been there someday, you know, or before. We are all flesh and we're all heirs to the same uh, things that flesh is heir to. Very important. If you take the attitude of pity, it's this real delusion. You think, oh, you see, this is never going to happen to me. I'm never going to get sick. I'm never going to grow old. My wife's never going to leave me. My husband's never going to leave me. My dog's never going to die. Oh, those poor people, this is happening to them. Well, you're deluded. You're deluding yourself. Maybe you won't get cancer. Maybe you'll get Alzheimer's disease or something worse, you know. No difference recognizing that. And then, fourth, love has to be put into action. Theophane, the recluse, a great mystic of the Eastern Orthodox Christian Church, said, love is learned by acts of love. And this leads us into service. This is what service is about. Here to serve. From a relative point of view, it's good to utilize whatever talents you have and if you have talents to develop them to help people you know if your uh, talent is uh, lies in the direction of nursing <coughs> go to nursing school and all that but people are constantly asking uh, me anyway and i hear it discussed uh, what can i do to perform service what can i do and really the true secret of service is very very simple it has nothing to do with what you actually what you're doing it has to do with why you're doing it Brother Lawrence, a Christian mystic from the Catholic Church, 
says it very simply, our sanctification depends not on changing our works, but on doing for God what we normally would be doing for ourselves. You don't have to change a thing, as I've often said, unless maybe if you're making napalm or something, you might want to consider that as a not right livelihood, as the Buddhists would say. <coughs> Ego says, what's in it for me? You arrive at work, you know, you walk, open the door, walk in, and the ego's saying, what's in it for me today? What can I get out of this? Spirit of service says, how can I serve? How can I help other people? You come home at night, you're tired, you had a rough day, right? You walk in, uh, open the door, the ego's saying, what's in it for me? You know, was my spouse, my partner got dinner ready for me, you know, and this and that, or whatever. The spirit of service says, oh, what can I, here, I'm, I'm walking the door, what can I do? Oh, I see some dishes in the sink, go do the dishes. And look how many ways there are to serve. Well, everybody wants to be Mother Teresa. Oh, what will I do with my life? Should I go become a Sisters of Charity? Should I go do this? Well, in all that uh, spinning your wheels, you're missing opportunities. You couldn't get from here down to the corner without finding a piece of litter to pick up. That service. Most of the time, you go to. Uh, I go to the. Uh, Safeway and stuff. I see somebody who needs some help with something. I'm I'm often taking down a, uh, you know, a can for a little old lady with osteoporosis, you know, from the shelf. Even you know what? Even just being attentive to people's where they're at and being friendly is service. You go to the checkout counter, and the guy's having a bad day, you know, and instead of saying, oh. You know, what a uh, cold, uh, hostile clerk. I'm never coming back to this store. You make a joke or smile or, you know, engage the person. That's service. You start with that kind of service. You start from looking at those ways to serve. Believe me, if you're meant to be Mother Teresa, you will end up being Mother Teresa. You don't worry about that. She picked up that first uh, dying woman off the street. You know, she never would have picked her up if she had been sitting around thinking, someday I'm going to win the Nobel Prize. I'm going to be the most revered <laughs> saint. In, you know, It's amazing that when people say, well, I don't know how to serve. Look, open your eyes. And remember this motto, here to serve. You see, we don't remember. Here to serve, that'll alert you. You'll, sign, you'll find something, some way to serve. We've talked about this before, but a simple trick is to think everything is on loan to you. This is true, of course. We don't really own anything. That's a social fiction, this relationship of ownership, you know. It's written in laws and courts and all that, and it's a big game we pretend. But you don't own a thing. You don't even own your own body. You can think of it as all on loan to you. And whatever you're taking care of, you know, you're taking care of the house, take care of it for God. It's not your house, it's God's house. Uh, this house, you know, we're not the only ones who are going to be living in this house. We're going to be gone from this house someday. Somebody else is going to be moving in. You take care of it for them when they come in. You want to keep it up, right? The, even the dishes, you know, some of them will break along the way, but some will get passed on to goodwill or whatever. Chances are you're not going to be the only owner of, that, of the dishes. Supposing you have nothing to do. You really have nothing to do. You're here to serve. You come home at night. 
You open the door, you say, here to serve, and there is nothing to do. The bathroom is spotless, you know, all the ring around the tub has been cleaned, there are no dishes to do, there's nothing to do. Can you still serve? You certainly can. You're experiencing the world is service, if you're aware of that. Rabia, she was a great uh, Sufi mystic, she said, even the living sight of my eyes is service at your feet. What does that mean? Just the fact that there is visual phenomena arising, this is serving the divine. This is how the divine knows its own possibilities. We are the instrument by which God realizes all that God can do. Every one of you right now, the way the world is manifesting, appearing, is appearing visually uniquely to you. Uniquely. I might be seeing something similar. The two of you are sitting here close together, three of you. You're seeing maybe something similar. You could compare notes and all that. But you are not seeing exactly the same thing. And, and no one can see what you're seeing right now. Impossible. Even if, and same with you, even if you to just switch positions, time has shifted, the light has slightly shifted, and, and it's different. Now, from the point of view of quantum mechanics and mysticism, there is no other manifestation except what's manifest in consciousness. But regardless of that, do, do, can you see this? This is what the mystics mean when they say, God needs us to know what God can do. If we're not here, God doesn't know. Is that consciousness, if you like, this is a crude way to put it, looking out through our eyes, that is God looking out through our eyes saying, oh, look at this. How fantastic. And the highest service is to know our true self, that we indeed are the Father. We indeed are that Brahman. We indeed are that Lord. Not the ego isn't. Don't get confused here because you really go nuts. But that consciousness, that awareness, that is God. And then not only does God know all God's infinite possibilities, but God knows that God knows, if you like. And that is the perfect realization of God's potential. This is why Ibn Arabi, great uh, Sufi, great Muslim mystic, writes, It is we who make him a divinity by being that through which he knows himself as divine. Thus he is not known until we are known. You get it? God does not know God is God except through us. We know God is God. God has no idea God is God until we come along. Oh. We start to know God. God starts to know God. We know that we are God. That's God's knowing I am God, if you like. I'm, I have to speak a little poetically here, by the way, because there just aren't words for this. The point is, our life is service. We don't know it. Our being, our existence, our breathing, our seeing, our hearing, all that is service. 
It's service going on all the time without the slightest effort on your part. And the only thing that's required is to become aware of it. Just to become aware of it. Just when you walk in the door and there's nothing practical of service that you can do, sit down on the couch and just become aware. That's all. That's service. That leads us back to learning. It's through this service that we become aware that we learn. And ultimately, just like with service, the possibility to learn is never absent from any situation. The possibility to learn, the possibility to know, the possibility to realize, to have a gnosis of the absolute truth is available in every single instant. Everything, everything is teaching the ultimate truth right now. The Tibetan Buddhists have a way of looking at the cosmos. It's one of my favorites. They say the cosmos is a mandala. A mandala is any sort of structured form. You commonly think of it in terms of pictures. But the cosmos itself is a mandala. It's a teaching mandala. And what is uh, required, really, though, to realize it's a mandala, to make it a mandala? Well, five things are required. First of all, the teacher. You need a teacher. Well, the teacher of the cosmos is the Buddha nature, the ultimate Dharmakaya. Then you need a teaching. Well, this is the teaching right here. This is it. See? Manifesting. This is the mandala. Then you need a time in which it can manifest. Well, the time is always now. This is the time. See? 1252. It's manifesting right now. So we got, we got the teacher. We got the teaching. We got the time. It needs a place. Well, here's, this is it. This is it. You're the place, you're the place, you're the place, you're the place. Right? It's all here. That's four things. One other thing. It needs an audience. It needs a student. It needs someone to show up for the teaching. The other part of it is all happening. The teacher, the teaching, the time, the place. <coughs> Our part is to show up. Just to show up. Just to be present. Just to be the student. Just to be here to learn. This is what Wang Chempa, one of the great, great masters of Tibetan Buddhism, says. Speaking as this divine consciousness, this Buddha nature, he says, I, the creativity of the universe, arise as the teacher in five forms of pure and total presence. The five forms are in this cosmology, the five elemental qualities, you know, uh, uh, water, earth, air, fire, space. So I arise as the teacher in the five forms of pure and total presence. Their dimension is the full richness of being. See, everything is manifesting as one or, or a combination of these qualities. Their message is conveyed through their form. They're not, you know, all chatting here. It's not like you're missing something in the auditory field. This is, this is the message. See the form of this the glasses case? You see that? That's the message. It's being conveyed through, just through what it is. What other Buddhists would call the suchness of things. The teacher teaches its own nature. What is being taught? The true nature of all this is being taught. 
consciousness itself, the Dharmakaya, the Buddha nature, God, Allah, is teaching its own nature through all these forms. The five forms of the state of pure and total presence show everything to be the truth itself. All these forms, everyone, this is the truth. This, here's the truth. Here's the truth. So you don't get it yet? I mean, you know, God's uh, got tremendous patience and very creative. Here, here, you don't get that? I'll show you this one, see? Right? Oh, and then, and then the visual uh, uh, isn't working. Well, we, got, we got sounds, too, you know. I mean, you know, taste, you know, tactile, you know, this is it. All the beings of the three realms realizing this become equal to all the Buddhas. It's through realizing what's going on right now, the true nature of everything right now, as you become equal to all the Buddhas. That's, that's it. That boils it down the simplest uh, way it could possibly be said. To know one thing, to know what this cup is, I don't mean to know its chemical makeup or its laws of physics or whatever like that, but to know what it truly is, its suchness, its immediacy, what is it actually? To see that this is a manifestation of the divine is to know what everything is. You know, all the great teachers, the Buddhas and uh, the great prophets and Jesus, they're all omniscient. They know everything. That's the, in the traditions. Now, most people take that to mean, uh, well, Jesus knows everything in the sense that Jesus knows what the, the stock market's going to do tomorrow. It'd be nice. We all would like to have that kind of omniscience. That's not what they're talking about. It's not an omniscience in, in terms of uh, intellectual knowledge, which is always being created. The, the Buddha didn't know the formulations of quantum mechanics because they hadn't been created yet. You know, God's creative. If God knew everything uh, was going to happen, God wouldn't bother. It's not true. God knows everything because this is God's knowing right now. There's not a difference between God's doing and God's knowing, as the Christian mystics say. But to know what everything is. Not in terms of concepts. That is the omniscience being talked about. And if you can't see it right now, that's okay. This is the whole point of this little teaching I gave this morning. If you take this simple little motto, here to learn, here to love, here to serve, and you actually start putting the practice, you actually just remember that, and approach every situation that way, believe me, you will eventually see what Longchenpa was talking about. You will. All you have to do is be the student. All you have to be uh, is the lover. All you have to be is the one willing to serve. You just have to show up. And God, the divine, whatever takes care of all the rest. It's that simple. Just show up. Just be present. So maybe these three little uh, mottos, mini mottos, will help you to do that. I know everybody wants to get out in that sunshine and learn, right? <laughs> <laughs> and love and serve. We did go on a long time this morning. So uh, why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome, as Mike said earlier, to stay around, have some tea. Definitely check out the library if you haven't seen it before. <coughs> and until we see you again... Peace to everybody.